May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Chapter 38 of Genesis. It's an odd and awkward chapter in the Bible. But as I mentioned last week, sometimes these awkward chapters, these awkward things in the Bible are like gospel gifts of grace, just waiting to be unwrapped to see the gospel. And this is one of them. Uh, Chapter 38 of Genesis is not often preached, uh, and for a couple of reasons. Partly because of the content itself. It can be a little bit um, embarrassing. But also, it's often not preached because it's perceived incongruity. By that I mean it doesn't seem to fit. And some of the brightest, brightest scholars from the, from the past have looked at it and said, it just doesn't fit. We have the Joseph story that begins in chapter 37 and sort of ends at the end of chapter 50. And this seems to be an intrusion into that story. But others... Others say, uh, no, it's an integrated part of the story that unfolds in this last block of Genesis. And I agree with that. In fact, I think that chapter 38 of Genesis is like a watershed. You know what a watershed is where, where, the, where the rain comes down and, it, and that's where the, the rivers begin to flow. It's from that watershed. And it is from this place in chapter 38 that a marvelous, marvelous river just flows out toward the wide, wide world. So it's kind of a, a watershed, uh, a watershed moment in salvation history. And I mentioned a block. Last week I I talked a little bit about the generations and how Genesis can be looked at in terms of ten blocks, so to speak, uh, marked off by the expression, uh, usually these are the generations of. Sometimes it varies, but basically you have ten blocks. And these blocks make up uh, the solution to God's complicated plan. Because God had a plan in the beginning. And that was that he would create mankind in his image. And that they would be bearers of his divine image. And that they would be fruitful and they they would multiply and they would fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the earth for a purpose, to fill the earth with God's glory. But then, of course, in chapter 3, sin entered into the, into the world, and it complicated the plan. Didn't change the plan, didn't stop the plan, but it complicated the plan. 
And last week we looked at that. We saw how uh, in chapter 37, the young 17-year-old son, the favorite son of Jacob, a little bit full of himself, uh, was hated by his brothers. And how his brothers initially plotted to kill him and then, and then plotted to sell him into slavery, to get rid of him. Because the issue was, who was going to be uh, the one that was the firstborn? And in the ancient Near East, it wasn't always a, a matter of chronology. It was who was going to get the blessing? Who was going to get the double portion from the, from the father and carry on? You see, part of God's plan was that he was going to work through this family, this covenant family, this premier covenant family, in order to bring about the solution, ultimately, of that complicated plan. This was the family that was going to bring forth the king and ultimately the anointed one, the savior, the messiah. We looked at that and we saw this, this family was a pack of scalawags. Now, uh, uh, some of you were here last week and I defined what a scalawag is. A scalawag, that's a, a nice old American English term. And I'm not going to go over that again today. I think you will get it from the context of where, how I use the word scalawag. But you could listen to the sermon from last week if you want. Or, for that matter, you could ask someone who was here, what is a scalawag? And they should be able to describe to you what a scalawag was or is. But this is a pack of people that they... If they were intended to, to be bearers of the divine image, to represent God, to reflect him, to, to resemble him, uh, this family seemed far, far away from that. And in last, last week's message, one of the turning points is when the scalawag Judah says, let's not kill him. Joseph, who is sitting in a pit, uh, let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the turning point uh, in, in that chapter last, last week. And of course, he does get sold into slavery, and he goes down into Egypt, a land associated with a preoccupation with death in the afterlife. And Judah, or Ju, uh, Jacob himself says that he will go down to Sheol mourning, mourning for this beloved son, uh, Joseph. But let's get into chapter 38. And I'm going to read the first uh, five verses of, of chapter 38. And now listen to this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw 
the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, he took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kaziv where she bore him. Now let's take a, let's take a look at, at that. It says at that time, at that time, and it's kind of unusual in a sense the way it is worded here. It implies that it happened right away, very, very quickly. Oftentimes in Genesis and other places it would say something like it happened uh, after a while or after that time, but here it, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. And you wonder, why did he do that? Why did he, why did he, why did he do that? Why did he leave his father's house? He left his father's house. Why? Well, the text doesn't say, but we can well imagine. Jacob Jacob is mourning for this beloved son, the one that he intended to give the, the blessing of the firstborn to because the, he thought he was dead. And he refused to be comforted. His sons and daughters tried to comfort him and he refused. And for many days, he mourned for the loss of his son. And I think when it says many days, it meant many months. It could have been, meant many, many years. And so Judah, you know, he realizes perhaps that now maybe that favor is going to go to Benjamin. And there's some evidence in scripture that that's true because later on in Genesis, Judah himself will say that the soul of Jacob was entwined with the soul of his son, Benjamin. So you can well imagine, here's your, here's your father. Who's going to get the right of the firstborn? Well, it's going to be, it's going to be the, the, the lastborn, Benjamin. So Judah may well have said, what's the point? What's the point? Uh, why should I stick around here? And so he, he takes off for himself. So he goes down. And notice he goes down from his brothers. And he turns aside. And that's an interesting way of saying it. Oftentimes in the Old Testament when you turn aside, it, it has kind of a sinister idea behind it. He turns aside to a certain Adulamite. Uh, it could also be translated he stretched out implying he stretched out his tent. And it looks like, it looks like Judah formed a partnership with this Adulamite, Hirah. We know from scripture that, that, that he was with this man for many, many years. And so Judah leaves his father's house, turns aside to this Adulamite, and there... Uh, he sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite. And very quickly, very quickly, he saw her, he took her, he entered her, and they, she bore a son. It's kind of, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, 
I'm reminded of Julius Caesar when, when, he said, when he said, Vini, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. It's just <clears throat> quickly. I came, I saw, I conquered. And, and that's the feel here. That, that he saw her, he took her, he entered her, and bore uh, a son. And, and that, that rapidness continues on, because it happens a second time, and Onan is, is uh, born. And it happens a third time, and Shelah is, is born. And I want to make note of one other thing about this Canaanite woman. She's nameless. She has no name. She's known as the daughter of Shua. Now in Chronicles it calls her Bat-Shua, but that just simply means daughter of Shua. She has no name. She has no name. And when in scripture when someone like this has no name, it has, it has a feeling about it that, that there is some form of rejection going on here. Some form of rejection. She's nameless. We will never know whether she was Ophelia or Daisy. Whatever her name was, she'll always be known simply as the daughter of the Canaanite Shua. And it says then, at the end of this passage, Judah was in Kaziv when she bore him. Now, when... When scripture does something like this, when the narrator brings in just a little uh, expression like this, he's saying, uh, make note of this. And I can't make a big point of it, but Kaziv probably derives from a verb that means to lie or to deceive. It's there for a purpose, and the original hearers would have heard perhaps that echo of the deception and the lie that was to take place. And now in the next passage, we're going to jump ahead about 15, 16, maybe 17 years or more. And I'm going to pick up from verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste himself on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Tamar. Judah Judah had an eye for the ladies, it seems. He sees Tamar. Here's, a, here's one for, for my firstborn. And her name means uh, date palm. And it, it has kind of that idea, 
tall and graceful, sweet and bearing fruit. It's a beautiful name, Tamar, and a beautiful image of, 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 a, of, a, of a date palm. You, have you seen date palms? You know, they're tall and slender and beautiful and bearing this sweet, sweet uh, fruit. And usually, usually they are growing in the Middle East in places that are oasis, a, a place of water and freshness and comfort and and, and it just it just has a, a, a feel about it. And maybe he saw Tamar and he says, ah, here's one for Ur. Okay? And but Ur was wicked. But his wickedness was is undefined. The the text doesn't say what it is that Ur did, but whatever it, he did the Lord was not pleased, and the Lord put him aside through death. So then it fell to Onan. And now here we have the, the, the matter of what is called leveret marriage. And I'm not going to go into it in detail, but it was, it was a custom, it was a law in the ancient Near East among many peoples, including uh, the people of Israel, uh, you can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It explains the, the law of the leveret marriage. And basically what it was, it was, it was to preserve the line of a firstborn who died without leaving uh, a male heir. And it was, it was a kindness to him because his name would then continue on uh, with another son. Uh, and it was a kindness to the widow as well for the next in line who, who was perhaps not married to raise up children through the, the, uh, the uh, uh, daughter-in-law. And, uh, and so it, it, it seems peculiar to us, or sister-in-law, it seems peculiar to us, but it, it was common in the, in the ancient Near East. And in fact, probably still continued on up until the time of Jesus. You could read in, for example, in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is confronted by, uh, by the, the, the Pharisees, you know, uh, a man was, or woman was married to seven different brothers and all of them died. Who's, you know, who is the husband of this woman? It, it pictures that leveret marriage. And so it fell to Onan to, to, to do this duty. But he didn't. He didn't. And now, uh, he, this comes into kind of one of those delicate areas, uh, but it was not so much the action of Onan, but it was his attitude. Uh, the uh, uh, medieval... Rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, affectionately known as Rashi, even to this day, a thousand years later, Rashi is studied and read and, and paid attention to by, by scholars, particularly Jewish scholars all over the, the world. Well, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, Rashi said, what he was doing was he was threshing within and winnowing without. And I'm not going to go into it any more detail than that, but he was, he was not giving to, to uh, uh, Tamar what was needed. But it was more than selfishness. 
I, when I first saw this, I thought, well, he's be, just being selfish. But it really goes deeper than that. Uh, in doing some reading, uh, one, one scholar said, he is, in fact, extinguishing another person, namely his deceased brother, since now that brother cannot live on in his descendants. It's tantamount, it's almost the equivalent of murder. Think about that. And maybe that sounds a little strange, but does Jesus not say if you, if you call your brother a fool that you're guilty of murder? I have a brother. I'm, I'm sure he's said some things about me. <laughs> but guilty of murder. And the selfishness of Onan goes further. It goes almost to the point of murder. And so he's eliminated. And so, so now, now Shelah comes into, into play. And here, the birthplace of Shelah comes into play. Kaziv, the lie, the deception. Notice in verse 11, it says, Then Te- Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. But he had no intention of giving Shelah to Tamar because he feared that he would die like his brothers. It, it kind of shows that, that it was really Judah who was being selfish. He wanted that son to bear an heir to continue on his line. Uh, it's like he also was superstitious. He says, I lost two sons to this gal. She's sweet, but she's poison. And I'm not going to give a third son to, to this woman. So he, he says, go off to your father's house. And now I want to spend a, a moment or two talking about that word house because, because in the Old Testament, when you talk about a house, we tend to think of a house as a material thing. Four walls, a roof, doors, windows. If, you, if I were to say, you know, come on over to my house for a cup of coffee, you would look for a place with walls and a door and, and a roof over it. Uh, and that's what it can mean as well here in, in the Old Testament. But sometimes we also refer to a house as being something more than four walls and a, and a roof. Uh, but in the, uh, in the Old Testament, it means much more than that. Uh, the house of a person means sort of uh, all that uh, is symbolized by the, the individual, his whole household. And, and that includes religion. That includes faith. And we see a, a reflection of this in, in the book of Joshua when Joshua says, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And, and here, going back to her father's house meant she, would be, she was be going back to her father and his re- religious uh, affairs as well. It was, it was symbolic. Uh, in, in that sense. And we can think of it as well uh, from even going back to uh, Abraham, chapter 12, when, when God calls Abraham, it says, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. And he didn't mean leaving four walls and a roof. 
it meant leaving that way of life, leaving that uh, religious uh, affiliation. And so she goes back to her father's house. Let's go further in the story, picking up from verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her, there's that word again, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Several things I want to point out here. Judah seems easily comforted. If we think of Jacob and how it was many, many days that he was not comforted for the loss of uh, Joseph. Here, notice, notice in, in just a few words, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. And do you realize how those two clash? Quickly he gives up mourning and it's off to the sheep shears. And, and in this culture, at this time, to go off to the sheep shears was like, it's party time. It's party time. So he, as soon as, he's, as, soon as his, his wife is gone and buried, almost, it's party time. And he goes up with his buddy. And now this has been at least... 15, 16, 17 years or more that he's been palling around with this guy. It's party time. Let's go on up. And I want to point out here the, the, the character again of Judah and how people knew that. Doesn't, the text doesn't say who told Hamar that he was going up to Timnah. But people knew Judah and they knew the situation. They must have known the situation. It wasn't regular. Shalah was not given to her. They must have known that. And they suggest to her, <clears throat> your father-in-law is going up to the sheep shearing in Timnah. And she knows the character of Judah as well. She is going to set the trap and he's going to take the bait. She's confident of that. So Judah had a reputation in this community, and it wasn't a good one. And once again, a garment comes into play. She takes off 
She takes off the garments of widowhood, of mourning, uh, and she puts on a veil. She puts on a veil, and she sits at the entrance to Anayim. And now here again, the meaning of the word carries all, uh, the name carries all sorts of uh, interesting things. Anayim means, could mean the place or the entrance to the two wells. And could be possibly uh, a picture of the two boys that would be uh, born from the, from the union. But it also could mean two eyes. Whether it's two wells or two eyes, maybe the author, the the narrator, intended us to understand both of those ideas. The two eyes watching what's what's going on. And Tamar, notice it says she saw with her two eyes that Shelah was of age. And Judah saw with his two eyes what he thought was a prostitute. But it was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And so there's another turning point. He turns to her, uh, that word again. And notice again, it's a business transaction. Proposition. What do, you, what, what do I give you to lay with me? You know. And she says, he says, I'll offer you a goat. And the pledge then, and that's a key word here in this passage, and it's a key word in the, in the, the, the wider story. I uh, Give the pledge, the signet, the cord, the staff that is in your hand. Once again, a hand that's, you know, four fingers, a thumb, and a palm, that's physically, materially, and it's used that way. His, the staff was in his physical hand, but in the, in the Bible, just like in, in our languages, the hand can mean so much more. And in, in, in many places here, and we're going to see it in the text, hand means uh, responsibility. It means control. And so the staff was in his hand. And let's go on further in the story. When Judah sent the young goat by the hand of, notice, by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at uh, the two eyes at the roadside in Iam? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and says, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we, notice, we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. What character? What character? But Judah trusted Hirah. This is a delicate matter. He was going to be bringing the goat. And Judah didn't want to see this uh, woman again. So he sends Hirah. And then when Hirah doesn't see the woman, because she's now in, in widow's garments elsewhere, 
he asks the men and he changes the word from, from prostitute to cult prostitute. It's an different, entirely different word. The prostitute was just in it for the money. But to kind of dress it up as a cult prostitute, you have to understand Canaanite religion. Uh, the, the, the idea of cult prostitutes, well, you know, uh, where's, that, where's that woman that uh, you, could, you could, you know, worship your gods uh, by having a good time? So he changes it. He ch- Hira changes it so that it's a little more delicate. So he's not asking for a harlot. He's asking, where's the <clears throat> uh, ministeress, the cult prostitute? So here's Judah and his buddy Hirah, and they're in this thing together. And so he says, let her keep the pledge. People will laugh at us. They were laughing at him already. I think they knew Judah. I think they knew who he was and what, was, what he was like. And so he leaves the pledge with her. And some commentaries have said it was like he left his driver's license and credit cards with a prostitute. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that because the signet, the cord, and the staff represents more than just simply a financial kind of thing like a, or identity in a, in a physical sense. It, it t- spoke of a person's authority. It spoke of a person's being. It spoke of a person's uh, character. Let her keep the stuff. Let her keep the stuff and let's get out of here. And let's move on. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah says, bring her out. Let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord, and the staff. Notice she, she names them. Then Judah recognized them. He identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Notice, notice at the beginning, because it's three months later, it becomes obvious that the widow's garments are beginning to bulge a little bit. And Judah's reaction is, is an overreaction. It's a hyperreaction. Bring her out, burn her. It, it's almost as if Judah wanted to make a point. He wanted, he wanted to, to not have anything to do with this woman. Maybe he even wanted her, he wanted her dead. And I, and I thought about that. Yeah, he, this is a convenient way to get rid of Tamar, who is a, an inconvenience to him. But then I thought about it a little bit deeper. And she's pregnant. We know, well, we'll know from the story, she's bearing two. They didn't know that then. 
but he wanted, he wanted her out of the way and that innocent, an innocent, at least one innocent, unborn child. Nice guy, Judah. Nice guy. I, I don't want us to dwell on that. What I do want us to notice is the recognition. Let's not miss this recognition because what we have here is we have a connecting word, a leading word that, that ties this story to many, many other stories in the, in the Old Testament. Chapter 27, Jacob, Esau, and Isaac. There's the deception over the firstborn. There's the brother's clothing that is worn by Isaac. There's a slaughtered goat. The skins of the slaughtered goat are put on Jacob's hands to fool him into thinking that it's Esau. And it says Isaac did not recognize that it was Jacob. Then just last week in chapter 37, we saw it again. The brother's clothes, the tunic, they slaughtered a goat put the blood on the, on the, on the tunic, and then, then said to the father, uh, do, do you recognize this? And he recognized it as his son's tunic. The same Hebrew word. And now we have it a third time. There's the change of the clothing. There's the wage of a goat. And he recognizes he recognizes it. And this is also picked up later on in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, when when, when the, the, uh, Moses describes in, in, in Deuteronomy 21 the law, and the law included a man who had two wives. One was loved and the other one was unloved. And the, and the the, the son of the unloved, if he was the firstborn, was the one who was the firstborn. And you had to recognize him. It, it's, a, it's a word that ties the idea of the, the rightfulness of the, of the firstborn. It ties these uh, episodes together so that we can understand that what is the issue here is the, is the, the right of the firstborn. And the blessing. And it'll appear again, this word in chapter 42 of Genesis in a different context. And then again in Ruth chapter 2 and even as far out as 1 Kings 14. Uh, this, is, this is what you call a leading word. And, the, and, and what, it, what it is, is it's a line that connects two separate or distant portions of scripture together. So there we have, once again, uh, this recognition. Moving on. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his look, Pay attention. His brother came out and said, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Peretz. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was 
called Zerach. Once again, there's the reversal of the, of the, of the firstborn, the reversal of the of this birth of the sons. It's, it's, it's a picture, again, of Jacob and Esau from earlier on in, in Scripture. And notice the hand motif. Next week, that hand motif is going to play an even bigger role in chapter 39. So keep that in mind as we get there. But what of this watershed moment? What of this uh, confession of Judah, she is more righteous than I am? What does Judah do then? Well, I am confident from Scripture that Judah returns to the father's house. Why, do I, why am I convinced of that? Well, in chapter 43, he's already back. He's already been down to Egypt once and back to his father uh, in Canaan. And in chapter 43, watch this, watch this. Uh, Judah pleads with his father Jacob, please, father, let us go back down to Egypt and get grain because we will die otherwise. And Benjamin, I know you're concerned about Benjamin. He says, I will be the pledge for Benjamin. If I don't bring Benjamin back, hold it on my account. And then in chapter 44, when, when Benjamin is set up by his brother Joseph, by putting the cup of so-called divination in his, in his bag of grain, and Joseph, they didn't know it was Joseph at the time, is threatening to, to haul Benjamin into slavery. Irony, isn't it? Into slavery. And what, is, what does Judah do? Judah pleads with this powerful man in Egypt that he doesn't realize is Joseph, the one he wanted to sell into, uh, into slavery. He pleads with him. He pleads with him on behalf of my father, my father, my father, on behalf of him, let me be that slave and let Benjamin go. Judah was a changed man. He had had an identity crisis and he had come out of that a new creation. You cannot explain this behavior of Judah in chapters 43 and 44 without realizing that Judah was changed on the inside. Changed on the inside. And ultimately, ultimately we see it and ultimately... Jacob saw it too. The Lord saw it, certainly. Because at the, end of the, at the end of the whole section in chapter 49, Jacob is pronouncing prophecies uh, over his son. Sometimes people say it's blessings, but there's really only one that gets an unequivocal blessing, and that's Joseph. Joseph gets a blessing in chapter 49, commensurate with the firstborn. But it says of Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
he stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coal to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Judah was going to be the line of the king, the line of the Messiah. And now, there will be a lot of ups and downs in this line, lots of zigs and zags. I just think of Achan, one of the descendants who committed an abomination, and think of the Davidic kings, maybe the worst of them, Manasseh. But there were several that were not so, not so good. But God's providential hand is mending, molding, and making this line leading to Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the story goes on in us and through us. Uh, when we look forward, when we see, when we see how God is, is making us, mending us, molding us, so that we too would be bearers of the divine image, reflecting, resembling, and representing our Heavenly Father here on earth and filling it with his glory. The Apostle John saw it. He said, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He came, he saw, and he conquered sin here on earth. And the prophet Isaiah also picks up on that. He says, and many people shall come. And this is looking forward in the future. This is not necessarily now. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So for us, for us, come to the Father's house. Come to the Father's house. This is, this is where we hear God's word. This is where we, where we experience the presence of God. And perhaps you're hearing this and, and you've never, never responded to the gospel gift of grace. Then maybe this is your moment. Maybe this is your moment of an identity crisis. Just like Judah saw who he really was 
and became who he really should be. Maybe this is your moment. If you have never, never made that step, make today be that day when you enter the Father's house. When you enter that Father's house. So for all of us, let us return to the Father's house. Amen.